This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm sitting here with Glenn Wallace of Rune. It is February 20, 2013. Uh, we are recording this interview at my house, and this is part of the Loud Fast Philly series. Hello, Glenn. Hello. Hi. Uh, um, so I guess uh, to begin, uh, we'll talk a little bit about your upbringing, you know, where, where you came from, uh, you know, a little bit about your hmm. early life, if you'd like. How early? Right? Beginning. Uh, when? Once upon a time, you were a baby. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, essentially, I mean, did you grow up? You didn't grow up in Philadelphia. Right? I moved to Philadelphia when I was eleven or twelve, South Jersey, really. Okay. Uh, my my parents separated. My father moved into the city. I moved in the city with him when I was around fifteen or so. Mm -hmm. So I've been, you know, lived in Philly more or less since I was fifteen. Moved out of the city. In like eighty six or eighty seven or so, mm -hmm. and did you move? To away I moved to Germany. Oh, okay. Right. At that point, um, to study. And, no. Okay, so you came in at fifteen. What year were you born? I was born fifty eight. Okay. Uh, so that was. Oh, you, you do the math. <laughs> uh, all right. So that is some sometime it, it in the late, late mid seventies. Mid seventies. Okay. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So at the time that you moved, uh, this is probably prior to the existence of punk. It, it was. Uh, it was pro just prior to the existence of punk. So were you actively interested in or involved in music prior to... I was, I was very... I mean, music... When, when I discovered music is like when I came alive. And that mm -hmm. was Rolling Stones, you know, in, in sixth, seventh grade. Um, by the time I moved here to South Jersey, I actually became friends with Vasco then, and we very early discovered that we had an interest, a shared interest in music. The music was, you know, Alice Cooper, um, you know, Prague, Prague. I guess I don't know if we started into the Prague rock bands. We were actually more interested in kind of stuff on the on on the periphery even back then, like you know, Black Sabbath. Mm -hmm. uh, um, Alice Cooper in the early days. I'm, I'm forgetting now who it was. Quickly, we discovered bands like the New York Dolls and Iggy and the Stooges, and that stuff really animated us. But yeah, yeah. music was was very important from very early on. What part of uh, Jersey were you in? Um, South Jersey, Medford. Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. and that's my brother who plays guitar in the band, and and Tom or Vasco, also in Medford. Okay, uh, so when punk comes along, is it? A revelation for you? I mean, as it was, you know, for, for some people, yeah, how did it um, affect you? I actually, it's funny that you asked that because um, I, I started reading about it first. I think, you know, reading about these bands like The Clash and The Sex Pistols, seeing pictures where it looked really cool and interesting. Um, and I was really excited when uh, Nevermind the Bullocks came out. I, I ran to the store, got it the morning it came out, came home, put it on the turntable, and was deeply disappointed. Oh, really? Yeah. What, it, what was your issue it, with the record? It just it just sounded like rock and roll to mm -hmm. me. I mean, there was elements of it that on several listens I, I started to like the lyrics, the snarl in his voice. Um, but I really I really expected something different from the descriptions. What I expected turns out probably be something like more like the Ramones. Mm -hmm. You know, talking about. Just the bigness, the loudness, the intensity, and I just didn't find it in the Sex Pistols. Right. So had you had not heard the Ramones at that point? Not at that point. Right. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure of the chronology of all this, but I'm pretty sure, you know, I, 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 
I'm, I may have heard, I think, I think The Clash came out after that, but shortly after that, I loved the, the British release of the first Clash record, which Bosco turned me on to. Um, I started going to the Hot Club, which I'm sure has come up. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I actually lived, I lived on 21st and Chestnut. What was the Hot Club, like 23rd and South or? Yeah, 24th I think it was around there, yeah. I was just walking past it one night. And it must have been what late seventies hot club. Mm -hmm. When was it? Seventy seven. Late seventies. Yeah. It was yeah. early days of punk. Anyway, yeah. um, and you know, I just, I just heard something coming out of there. I went in there. There may be six, seven, eight people just sitting around here and there. And I remember there's a band from New York called. I think they were called. What the hell were they? I don't remember what they were called. But it was kind of a niggies kind of guy. You know, he had platinum hair and you know no shirt and just just loud. I loved it. It was just I, I started going to Hot Club regularly after that. Yeah, what was Hot Club like? Uh, if you could kind of well, describe it. Well, the Hot Club in the beginning was for some reason. Whenever I went, there were very few people. Uh, there was just it was it was very it was bare. I remember some bleachers there. There was a bar somewhere. Was it over there somewhere? And there was a, just a stage with a bare sound system, and. Um, I, I I never saw a real crowd in that place until, if I remember correctly, the Cure played there. And again, I, I'm I'm not I'm not so sure about chronology, but I'm not sure when was the first when did the Cure tour the the first time. Yeah, I, I mean, I maybe late seventies or very early eighties. Okay. I wouldn't really know. So maybe certain, I'm, but, I'm not uh, sure if this, but I remember that was the first. I was surprised about how packed it was. This was the Cure when. You know, I forget his name, the dude's still skinny. Robert and, Smith. Yeah, yeah. Robert Smith was skinny. The, the, the all-in-leather bass player, I remember his back was turned the whole time. But that was the first time I saw the place packed. I remember shortly after that, I came and and I see all these guys with like, you know, the the, the kind of the new age, the new wave look. Mm -hmm. And I, I was like... Skinny ties. And it, it, it was the Penn students, the Temple students that started hearing, hearing about all this. And I thought, this, oh, it's all over now. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so prior to it all ending, um, yeah. did you, yeah. did you get a sense? This is something I've asked a few of the people who were around, you know, at at yeah. the start. Did you get a sense that that this was the thing, like that you were witnessing a great? No, not at all. I mean, uh, I knew it was different from the shows I saw at the Spectrum. You know, Aerosmith and right. bands, you know, bands like that. Yes, um, but there was. I, I guess I just wasn't. I just it never occurred to me. Maybe I was too young. I didn't have enough of a sense of the span of history or something to think that this was the next big thing or anything. I just thought it was a cool development. I remember when I when I first heard the Ramones, I thought, yeah, that's that's what I had in mind. That, that kind of that kind of music. I thought it was very exciting, but I never thought it would. I never thought that Ramones would end up in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or anything right, like yeah. that. I think I think I just read recently. That, the Dead Kennedys, one of their albums, of the first album, that finally got like reached gold status and took all these years, but still, now there there was no sense of as I can remember that this was anything like historically important. I never I never had that sense. I just I just loved it and was happy it was there. And I was I was I hated the music of of my youth, like on the radio. You know, I'd go to, you know, I went to this high school for a while and I mean, there's a jukebox and then I, I just hated everything that came out of there. So I was really happy that I had some music I could listen to. Mm -hmm. Now, there's no sense of like historical importance. Now, do you, do you see now sort of the, the sort of importance of you having been there at the, the start of this thing? 
Yeah, now, now of course, I, I look back and I feel like I was actually there at the beginning of something that did have historical importance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, oh, you read Ligotti there, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, you like that. Yeah, I yeah. Um, and, um, and that, you know, I, I try to talk to my daughters about a 13-year-old and a 24-year-old daughter. And, you know, they, to them, it's part of the history of music. And it's an interesting epic. So they, they also find that interesting. So that makes it even more interesting for me. You know, I was there at the beginning and I saw this band and this band and this band for, you know, what, the first time they came over when they were young and skinny. And mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think this is all really important <laughs> stuff because like, say something like this, you know, a year from now, a 15-year-old kid from Indonesia will be listening to this interview. Um, and, uh, you know, to have kind of like a very intimate perspective of like having seen something grow that, that miraculously in some form or another still exists today. Yeah. Um, yeah, but we can kind of get into today a little bit later. But we'll go back to initially. Did the band speak to you in any kind of like a political way? Did they kind of gel with maybe your personal politics of the, of the I, era? I think what really spoke to me was just the vehemence, the power, the intensity, the passion of it. You know, the heat, the the rawness. Um, that's what spoke to me. I, you know, I thought the I liked what the Clash were doing. They I, I like this band. I don't know if you ever heard his band, Sham 69. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were very political. And I guess it did speak to me in a sense, the political aspects. Some of our early music we wrote had had little sort of political stuff going on. So in a way, yes, it did. Uh, but not in the way that, you know, it did not, didn't take the role that, you know, I'm a, as you know, of course, you know, there was like a political faction, the punk. Mm-hmm. Um, and but it didn't. The political wasn't that important to me as it was to that that political faction. Right, right. Uh, but um, it was really, I guess, the attitude of it that really that really struck me. It resonated with, you know, my own anger and anxiety and interest, which I still have for you know, it's just passionate action. Mm-hmm. over over uh, refinement and you know sort of technical ability right yeah because certainly the feeling is that if you want to be in this sort of band you can do it that you're not you're not being held back well by, that was one know. of the great that, that was a, that was a great aspect of the whole thing the spirit you know I had friends who were like guitar virtuosos and they studied and they knew all the details of guitar and you know they were and you know they were they were still mastering their guitar, and while we were quickly writing songs and getting up on stage and playing, yeah, yeah, and recording records while the guys yeah. still trying to be Steve it, it, Howe, it's exactly which probably it's happen. true, exactly yeah. true. That was uh, that was also yeah that that was in, looking back to probably important cultural breakthrough that I mean I don't know maybe, maybe there were other periods of art where there was this kind of spirit of what we now call you know. You know DIY, but um, it really took hold back then, and it uh, in a big way. I mean, so like people all the way through had that spirit. People booking clubs, starting bands, you know, starting record companies. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. you witnessed obviously the, the birth of punk, and then this transformation of a sort, uh, hardcore. Uh, now this was something that I talked to Cordy about earlier, and then I'll kind of mixing my own thoughts on this but if you're viewing hardcore as sort of a paring down of punk stripping away the detritus the maybe some of the fashion some of the posing 
Mm-hmm. And there's an attempt maybe to bring it down to this this core, this yeah, absolute right. tighter core. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and then also you know, something that he talked about was that, that in that process there was the desire to, for some bands or some individuals, to find a certain spirituality in there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the bad brains gravitate towards mm-hmm. Rastafarianism. Minor threat. The minor threat is yeah. you know, with the straight edge, which mm-hmm. is a certain... Pl- and then you know, clearly with Ruin, there's Buddhism. Mm-hmm. So did, did you perceive... A shift as this thing called punk goes to this thing called hardcore. I mean, did you feel this paring down? Um, I didn't. I didn't really perceive it. I remember having a conversation with a guy. We worked in a restaurant together. He ended up playing in this band Why Die. I think. I think it was a student Why Die, and we were having a conversation about some new sounds we were hearing, and. He was insisting on calling it hardcore, and I don't know when the term hardcore really took. I know it was, it was probably eighty, eighty-one. Was it? Age. Was it because? I mean, so this, this was probably around. It must have been around that time. But I remember saying it should be called pure strain because I was saying it's. It wasn't so much about the beats or the speed of the music or the fashion or lack thereof. It was about. It was about a particular form. Of, of passion and energy that I was arguing. I remember this conversation we had. It was in, in this restaurant in Center City. We were busboys. And I was saying, it's, it's a pure strain. You can trace it back. You know, it was even there in the hippies and the beats and you trace it back to the romantics and even back farther than that. It goes back to the Dionysian cults. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. You know, punk got away from that. And there's always some some strain in any form of art that will try to get back to it. And he would say, no, it's, it's called hardcore. And I'm like, well, it should be called pure strain. I remember that. So I didn't even heard the term. That was the first time I heard the term hardcore. Mm-hmm. Right. What it was to me was just hearing, it was just, I think, you know, like, you know, GBH was, a, was an early version. I think when I heard, I went to the Eastside Club and Bobby started with Spinning Records. I think I started, he did, he did, he did a section on what now we'd call hardcore. I was like the exploited and discharge and. And probably you know GBH and, but it, it was very gradual to me, and it, it was all mushed together with, with the punk. I didn't see it as a like a faction or a separation in any way. Mm-hmm. And you know too, I mean you, you know Ruins music. It's 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 not it's not hardcore. I mean part of part of the uh, you know one of the issues back then was that there wasn't a lot of you know there was like mainstream rock and pop and different kinds of mainstream forms and if you were doing anything alternative to that you're all lumped together you're playing in the same places so you had a band like i don't know if you know this band sensory fix sort of a you know, pop 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 band um or bands like stick men funk kind of funky band you know playing the same places the hardcore bands were that's how we got stuck with that i mean we that's where we had to play but but it does come through in the music. We, I mean, we clearly, have some, you know, you're playing. We you know, have the elements of that and, for sure, yeah. and we have a couple songs that we have a lot of songs that have breaks where there's like thrash breaks. We have some songs that maybe very short, just just sort of thrash beats all the way through, hardcore kind of beats all the way through. Um, but um, there's an awful lot of mid-tempo stuff. There's sort of certain pop sensibility mm-hmm. going on in a lot of it. So you know, I never really identified with the hardcore scene or anything. I loved it when I heard it. I loved it, but I never identified with it or saw it as a development or a break from punk or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, in talking to you and, and Cordy, you both strike me as being you know, rather erudite 
fellow. So <laughs> I, I wonder if there's a if there was ever a certain distance between you and maybe like the more dunderheaded faction of hardcore, which certainly would have been present. Well, you know, we never really, and I think all the guys in our band, you know, intelligent, you know, and not that. You can't be intelligent and really into hardcore, but... Uh, no, no, they're, they're not mutually exclusive, but, yeah, yeah. but there's always going to be a faction of, like, complete dipshits who are going to be right. there to you know, punch each other in the head. It's a small yeah. faction, but we, it's we were never, We were never really, really, I mean, part of, I mean, to use the language of the time, you know, part of, part of the scene. Um, you know, we never really hung out with, you know, I went to see bands and went to clubs, but never really identified with with the scene. Mm -hmm. and part of what the way I talked about the music back then was, you know, it's it's not really about the music. You know, the music is just a form of expression about a whole life, and there's got to be a whole life behind it. And mm -hmm. music can be a form of expression of that, but it's that life that's the central thing. Um, so what I saw with like sort of people really into the scene who really their identities really depended on, you know, punk rock and all, everything that that meant or hardcore and everything that meant that we were, I, mean, I was like nowhere near that, that, you know, that, that sense of like, this is core part of my identity. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it was, it was part of how I wanted to express myself. And I think it's true for everyone in our band. How do you think then um, the band was perceived at the time by your contemporaries, both in other bands and then you know in the scene yeah. who were there to see you my impression at, at the time was that we had kind of had a reputation for being um what was the word you often heard i mean sometimes you've heard the word arrogant uh with you know detached aloof. Uh, distant aloof right. that's the word i was looking for right. that was our that was the kind of thing i would hear and were you comfortable with that perception? Yeah, yeah, because I wasn't interested. I don't think any of us were interested in um, in being identified with this scene or anything. But, I mean, you, you know? were performing within it. So, I mean, to a certain extent, there's there's an involvement. Well, sure. In, in that you know, way. An active involvement. Yeah. But I, I, um, I mean, a lot, of these, you know, a lot of these people form friendships around this. And, again, their, their fashion, their identity, their political view. They... In the language I would use now is they were kind of, they became sort of subjects, punk subjects in a way. Mm -hmm. They were subjugated by the whole punk rock ethos and ideology and all. And um, it was never, I was never affected that way. I remember once riding in the van, it was after Black Flag played, um, it was a Starlight Ballroom, I think. And the manager of our band, David Wildman, who also was the manager of the Kennel Club, he put the show on, so he asked me to kind of, you know, hang out with them and take care of them if they need beer or anything. And after the show, we we drove me and these got Black Flag and some people drove in a van to a party. I remember one of them was saying like, you know, you don't look like a punk, punk. You don't look like a punk. I, I don't know, but I probably dress like this or something. <laughs> right. I was like, and we got into this same conversation about, you know, why do you need to wear it? I'd, I'd always criticize the, uh, what was it called back then? Um, it's Philadelphia College, PCA, right? Philadelphia College of Art. Mm -hmm. um, I was like, why do you have to like look like this artist? So I'd go to the wooden shoe, the anarchist uh, group. Uh, and he's like, why do you have there. to like, you know, why do, I, why, why do I have to notice from blocks away that you're an anarchist? And you could you know? probably like, smell them from blocks yeah, away. Yeah, the galois, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, so it was a little bit, it, it, now I understand it as, as a, a refusal to be become a subject of this thing mm -hmm. 
you know. It's like I was telling the guy, you know, the, in the van that night, like, you know, the, mu the music's the thing, right? I mean, you don't have to, you know, become the, a, a punk rock subject. Right, right. I think for some people wearing the, the you know, the outward accoutrements, the kind of telegraph punk was just like to, to say to other people that they'd see at a distance, we share a common interest in, you know, in a world that probably wasn't necessarily very appreciative of yeah. that. And then through that common interest, you know, friendships are formed. And, well, you know, so, so, so maybe in those terms, maybe, maybe for me or for us, it was, that wasn't a central enough factor uh, to display. Mm -hmm. a, a, a central enough like facet of my identity is right. I, I had lots of interest and you know I would have it'd be hard to, to telegraph exactly on what basis I wanted to connect to you yeah right you know mm -hmm. yeah. so clearly Buddhism has Buddhism? played a significant part in both your life and in the band yes. which I think is, is unusual for bands coming out of that scene in, in general <laughs> yeah. but uh so I guess if you can give me maybe some background on your personal interest in, in that and then okay. forth, you know, through the band. Um, yeah, my interest in Buddhism goes back really far. Um, probably, I don't know if I was 13, 14. Um, uh, probably maybe 14 or 15. I, I can't remember exactly, but I, I had an interest, enough interest that my father, for whatever reason, I remember the, the first really the book I read on this sort of thing. He got, he gave me a copy of Ram Dass's Be Here Now. Mm -hmm. um, Bosco's mother had a, a book on transcendental meditation by was it, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and it immediately attracted me. I took it home and, and read it. I, so by the time I, I it's a long story, but I, I could no longer function in the high school. So I was put in this alternate, now, Back then it was called alternative school. Uh, now I think that has a different connotation. Back then it was an experimental school. I was the fifteenth student, so it was, it was very very small. So this is probably what like late sixties. No, no, this is uh, this is or, high school. Or, so oh, so this it's is like, uh, like early mid seventies. Yeah, seventy like seventy three, seventy seventy four, something like that. So is this, is this was this sort of a hippie ish school? Um, it was back then. Back then, the preferred term for my generation was freaks. Okay, <laughs> it was a freak yeah, school, okay. <laughs> yeah. which meant you had, you know, these are like the younger, you know, we were too young to be hippies, uh, but we were kind of the the next, you know, the, the younger siblings of the hippies okay. kind so of. So you didn't major in bongs? No, uh, we were interested in, well, we, you know, there was a lot of, you know, we were very interested in all that, you know, but uh, um, the school was was put together by these uh, these two. There's an English professor, uh, I forget St. Joe's, and a and a philosophy professor. And they they had it was part of the the movement back then. I think it started in the in the early 70s, late 60s in Boston. Uh, it was called the Free School Movement. Mm -hmm. Sudbury, I think the Sudbury Manifesto was a, a book that they wrote up about philosophy of education and how you might put together another school like this. So these guys got a hold of that. They put together a school. I mean, really, it was based on anarchist principles. Um, um, so I went to the school. Now, your parents, uh, are they on board with... Yeah. You know, I mean, my, my, so they're liberal yeah, leftists. They are. Okay. The therapists, you know, so they were tuned to all this. And, um, 
yeah, my father found this school and um, he thought he thought I'd do well and thrive there. So so I went to the school and they asked, the first thing they asked me was, what do you want to study? What do you want to learn? Because there was no set curriculum. It was all student interest driven. And I said I wanted to learn, I think I said something like uh, about Eastern philosophy or something. So they got this guy from the community. I remember his name was Bruce. I don't remember his last name. He had been an IBM executive and dropped out, you know. Uh, is this in, is it Medford? Or this or this was in Morristown, New Jersey. Okay, yeah. uh, South Jersey, Morrist, Morristown. Yeah, um, and so they got him to come in and teach me Eastern philosophy. What he ended up teaching me was from this Buddhist book called the Dhammapada, and he taught me how to meditate. So is this a one-on-one? -on -one, like one your education is you and this dude? Yes. I mean, that's okay. Another student joined us later, right. so there are two of us. So there's no uh, algebra? Or, oh, no, there, there, there's, there's no set curriculum. There's no, there's no, um, there's no attempt to, to, to form you in any particular fashion. It's you figuring out how you want to be formed. And, and that began with, what is your interest? What are your interests? And now let's find some people to, that serve those interests. Um, so they got this guy, Bruce. He taught me, he taught me Buddhism. He taught me the Dhammapada. And from then on, that was, that was a central interest of mine. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, I don't know. I could keep going from there on Buddhism. I mean, I ended up getting a PhD in Buddhist studies. So it's been serious interest my whole life. Uh, but one thing you might find curious is except for like those very earliest days uh when i was experimenting with with buddhism i, I i've never I considered myself a buddhist and it's similar to what i said about punk rock i was interested in buddhist forms of practice meditation and certain ideas philosophical ideas or psychological models uh working with those but never sort of the subjugating ideological components. I, always, I seem to have some natural aversion to that. Is it an element of, of the ritual that you, you don't find to be appealing? Well, or, I, I, or do you find it to be appealing? I find it to, to I do find it appealing. I, I, find, I, I find the Catholic Mass very appealing. You know, I, find, I find the high ritual very appealing. What I don't find appealing are the subjugating components. How you, in order to do this, you have to become part of this community with these kinds of ideas and the, the sacred texts do the thinking for you and that sort of thing. I never had any interest in, 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 be, in participating in. Although I did participate, I participated in communities, you know, Buddhist communities and so forth. But I, I always had a hard time. I never really conformed to them because of the same kind of thing with, I'm, I said about the punk community. Mm -hmm. right. I was you know, a participant and sometimes even, even a leader in these communities. And more recently, I was kind of on this Zen track where I was, I came to, when I came back to Philadelphia, I was, I opened up a Zendo at Second and Chestnut, you know, I have 20 people coming and I'm teaching them Zen. And then I, then that aversion kicked in and it's like, nah, I don't want to start, you know, subjugating these people now. Mm -hmm. So that was really, I, well, I didn't step out of Zen at that point. I started studying with the teacher in West Philadelphia, great teacher in, uh, Soto Zen tradition. I studied with her for five years. That's when, about two years ago, I just stepped out of the whole thing for the now, first time. Early on in in your 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 path into Buddhism um, and and some such as spirituality, was there ever the use of uh, psychedelics to achieve a certain spiritual? That, that was or before. 
I mean, a lot of drug use before, or maybe in the early days, the beginning with the meditation, Buddhism, but from the age of, I had an older sister, so the first time I, I got high was I was around 12 or so. Um, and I just spoke of pot, acid, you know. Right. That, that was probably in some way also important um, part of my curiosity about, you know, what I thought back then were like altered states of consciousness and all mm -hmm. that. So maybe that was part of my interest in, you know, Eastern spirituality. I don't like that word spirituality, but... Okay. It, do do you see a validity in, in your use of, of psychedelics at the time? What do you mean by validity? Uh, like, do you, do you perceive that uh, that, that had a, a positive effect on you moving forward? Uh, rather than being purely recreational, say. Um, I mean, it made me very curious about the mind and consciousness and possibilities of human being, what human beings are, you know, what potentials are. And I, I remember, you know, tripping. I remember the big thing with me was always, oh my God, it's like, it's, it's all constructed. It's all, it's all made up. There are all these rules that I don't even notice normally. And, and now the rules don't make any sense to me. You know? right, yeah. and, then, and then you start coming down, you start, you feel yourself coming back into the, the rules and the structures. And, and they seem really dumb, and, like after that point, completely right? Completely yeah. constructed. That was what I always found disturbing. It's all made up. It's all constructed. We're, we're making this shit up as we, you know, and it's not, re it's not really real. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard to take very trivial things seriously if you've seen this great expanse of, and, and and in that expanse, you see that that you know social norms and etiquette, and and I would even I mean if I were tripping and I see your books and everything, I think like oh my god, this is this is a display of his you know of his of his his person or his ego or this is just yeah. more displays like he's all over yeah. you know, Joseph's all over the room is <laughs> constant and th that sort of stuff was disturbing uh, mm -hmm. and um, but it was also it seemed to me to be very I've seen something very true, and I, I still see that as true. I just see it in a, in a different way as being true, that you know, we construct these forms, we agree to them, we operate with them. It, it keeps things you know, orderly and structured to a certain extent, although all hell always breaks loose. But, right. And then we die. And then, and yeah, the and then that's it. <laughs> right. And even there we have lots of night, we've constructed lots of nice little stories about what you know, how you come out of life and death unscathed, you know, into heaven or whatever. And, yeah. and in the drug, while I was high, or, you know, not just tripping on acid, but high, I didn't believe it. None of it, none of it made any sense. And uh, that's disturbing when you're young. That can be very disturbing. It's kind of... Yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're doing this at, you know, 12, 13, 14, and your brain still hasn't completely formed yet, yeah, it's, uh, I imagine it would be a pretty intense experience. Uh, I, I remember the very first time, actually, I had to go, the first time I really got high was um, I had to go eat dinner with my, my parents and my family, and I remember seeing it right there, like, oh, my God, the, you know, the, the dynamics and the, the competition and just becoming more sensitive to, to what's going on and, and feeling disturbed by it rather than just sort of unconsciously participating. In yeah, it, like it's a sort place. of a lockstep series of contrivances. Like, you know, people are acting a role. And that and is... And there's a transparency to and it. And that's very disturbing to see that. Yeah, it, because where do you go from there when you've got to, for the rest of your life, right. move through this? So now charade. that you mentioned, I, I guess, yes, all that was instrumental and important. 
I, I, I think so. And, you know, to this day, I'm interested in, in philosophy and, you know, literature and consciousness. And so it's persisted. Mm-hmm. So Buddhism played some role in the band. I mean, certainly people, yes. people were aware yeah. of the fact. I mean, right. there, was, there was an association with a, a sect or something? Uh, well, it was a Japanese form of Buddhism called Nichiren Shoshu. Nichiren Buddhism goes back to the 13th century. It's a form of Buddhism now, I know. I mean, I wasn't really aware of this at the time, but it's, it's based on what you'd call a mantra recitation. The whole practice was reciting a certain phrase sort of a mantra, repeating it over and over again, ideas about the scroll and cosmic forces and, and all that kind of stuff. But it's, it's very much rooted in, in 13th century Japan, sort of, um, there are a lot of traditions that, that developed around that time. Um, and um, somehow this particular group, sect, whatever, uh, took root in America. And I was walking down the street one day, I don't know how old I was, 16, 17. Um, and I right, was right on the corner. I remember 20, 20th and Chestnut, some guy says, like, I'm going to come to this meeting. What kind of meeting? A Buddhist meeting? I said, sure, I'll go. And from then on, I became, I was the first one who came sort of serious about this. Um, so I developed what they call the daily practice, like in the morning, in the evening, you do this practice. It was very, very, it gave me a lot of stress. I had no structure my whole life. Like that school I went to, it's, it, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was a, a, a principle that they remained unstructured. They thought structure was uh, um, detrimental to the development of a, of a young person. Don't give the person structure. Let the person figure out his or her own structure. Um, you know, my family life was chaotic. So, um, you know, my mental life was chaotic. So this is a very structuring practice. It, you know, twice a day I became very, very stabilized, very focused, very, you know, all, all this complex array of phenomena just, it just became just what's in front of me here and mm-hmm. just this sound. It was very... It was very sort of healing just doing it. I look back now and I say it had nothing to do with, again, with the ideological components and the beliefs that were surrounding this. I think it really just came down to making a commitment to do this thing for 20, 30, 40 minutes twice a day. Um, You know, that also, you know, that affected my sleeping, my drinking, my everything. I wanted to be fresh and be able to do this thing in the morning and in the evening. Um, and then my brother became interested. He played the guitar in our band, and then, then later Vasco, and then Cordy, and then Paul. So were you were you kind of drawing them into? That? I, I was. I, I guess I was an influence. I suppose. Yeah, I must have been. Um, I was like, you know, this this is good. This is good. It it, it focuses you. It settles you, and you know, it's stimulating and creative. And why don't you try it? So. There are also elements of it, you know, that that had to do with um, different kinds of, you know, the community and trainings, and it was it was valuable, I think, for for us as young as young people in a chaotic time. But you know, I would never, I would never participate in anything like that now. Why is that? Well, because it just it just involves beliefs 
and sort of social relationships that I just I'm not the least bit interested in now. So you did you make a sort of defined break with the sect? Yeah, when I when I uh, I did when I you know I again it's like what I described about my relationship with the punk scene and and um, what what else was oh, yeah well the uh, Buddhism more generally as I, I I said earlier it was the same here was. I was I was always, um, you know, I have a really strong skeptical streak, so I was in the terms I I would use now was I was always a bad subject. Mm-hmm. I was doing it and participating in it, but I was asking the questions that caused trouble, and I was disagreeing and and that the nail that of, sticks up gets hammered down. That's that's what they say in Japan, you know. Yeah. But I was like, we're in America, you're not going to hammer me down, you know. <laughs> uh, they would just give answers that I I found unacceptable about why they believed what they believed, and um, so uh, you know when you start on that path, eventually the doubts are going to. You know Nietzsche says the I, I don't know exactly the how he puts it uh, in a very comical way, but it's something to the effect that you know the the thinking person thinks himself right out of the group, you know, mm-hmm. to that if something to that effect. Right. So that's what happened there too, and. That was when I moved to Germany. I tried to, I really wanted a practice, a stabilizing practice, and um, I, you know, I tried to maintain it there, but but I couldn't. So then, I, then I start got more interested in traditional meditation at that point. I went to Zendo in Berlin, and that made more sense to me because it was just a seated practice. And we can talk about that more if you want, but um, there was a clean break with that particular brand of of Buddhism. You know, I I look back and I remember we did an interview with. Was it Tim Johan? What was his name? Tim Johan? Yeah, Max and Rock and Roll. and it was like right out, it was, uh, across the bay, not not San Francisco, but what was that? I don't know. Was it they, were, they were probably they were Berkeley. Berkeley. and Berkeley. Okay. He was asking us about this. He was doing an interview and he was he was pulling out some stuff about the politics of, of, of Nietzsche and Buddhism and, you know, and how like, you know, Reagan and this Buddha, you know, this Nietzsche and Buddhist leader were... It's very much like maximum rock and roll. Yeah, and I was like, I don't know about any of that, but you know, I don't. I'm not interested in any of those aspects of it. But looking back, I think, um, you know, it's it's kind of unfortunate that, you know, I wish I looking back, I wish I'd been interested uh, introduced to Zen in the very beginning. You know, the guy the guy who just introduced me to. Initial meditation, I don't know how, how well you know the meditation communities, but it was more what you would call a Vipassana-style meditation. Yeah, I don't know and, much about it. But it, it was really a stripped down. It would have been very suited uh, to me, but there were no real communities at the time. He would have to go up to uh, Barry, Massachusetts or something, and I just couldn't do that. So mm-hmm. this was available, and this is what I ended up doing. Yeah, and the band got interested. Everyone became sort of a common practice. Our first drummer, Richie, um, Rich Hutchins, he he's, he was not interested in it. It actually created some tension. He always felt like, you know, that he was being pressured to do this or that. Even if he wasn't being pressured, he he felt like he was he was outside. He was on the outside, and uh, it might probably led to his leaving the band. Yeah. So the band was known. By all and sundry, as a it was, yeah, I was punk band. Yeah, I mean, we didn't call ourselves that, or we didn't like bill ourselves. Right, right. I don't know whose perception. Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, first time 
uh, we're, our first really good big gig was with um, um, it was, it was with Public Image at the Eastside Club, and I remember Johnny Rotten, Johnny Lydon. Um, he stated our sound check, and uh, I talked to him a little later, and he said, "I heard you guys are Buddhist. You know, I wanted to say, I wanted to say it sound, and heard you guys sound like when he would a bunch of Buddhist punks sound like that." You heard about it. I mean, there's nothing that's going to come through the music that's going to telegraph. We are meditating Buddhist. I no, mean. there are some lyrics though that 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 do um, subtly refer to different aspects of the practice and. Mm-hmm. Talk to Vasco about all that. Okay. He, he wrote those lyrics. So was there any sort of a, a friction uh, between the band and and the punk scene as, as far as perhaps some people thinking that, you know, you were uh, engaging in some sort of mind control or seduction into a sect? Or something? Was there any, any, you know, friction between audience and band? Um, I, I, never, I never heard of any or picked up on any. Because punks, you know, being generally yeah. quite political, can be sensitive to to religion and spirituality at times, especially I, in a kind of supercharged fuck Reagan eighties. You know, I know. The first time I really uh, caught wind of that was um, at a Bad Brain show at at the Love Hall, and there were there were some guys out there like kind of picketing it, and I went out to have a smoke or whatever. And they they were telling me about you know, do you know what the politics of these guys are and blah blah blah, and I was like. I, I'm here for the music, man. I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in the politics. I can imagine. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, you ask some questions and maybe you can come back and tell me. I, I don't know what people perceived. You know, I think you know we put out these little pamphlets in the beginning with little sayings. They were not necessarily Buddhist. They were from philosophy or literature or poetry, and you know, it tried to have. Not not necessarily an uplifting tone to it, uh, the sayings, but or, you know the quotes, whatever, but a thoughtful one. You know, mm-hmm. we wanted to put out these little quotes that, that we thought were thoughtful, and we thought the music needed to go beyond entertainment. And one way to do that is to get people thinking about their lives and, and things like that. I mean, clearly, this is a far cry from the sort of nihilism that was endemic to the the early you know punk and hardcore, where you had lots of people with. Serious drug addictions, people who wanted to smash bottles, break things. It was, like, you it, know, this, it, that's not clearly. No, it's probably like close to the opposite end of that that um, that spectrum. Um, um, you know, I don't think it was quite as far on that that continuum as you know the Christian rock bands that came right. later. But maybe some people perceive that way, although. You know, I've seen some of these these little pamphlets, um, and you know, the lots, they're, they're gonna be pretty dark too. You know, oh, the Christian ones are. are well, when so 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 were ours. I mean, I'm saying that it wasn't all just uplifting stuff. It was stuff about. Yeah, but you're probably not condemning people for having abortions no, or being gay. You know? No, nothing so, like so, that. Yeah. No, no one's gonna have yeah. an issue with that because this it was is... almost awful. I was I I was a philosophy major at the time, so I was exposed to a lot of you know interesting provocative thought about you know, and some of that found its way into the. To our pamphlets, and then we, you know, we put up these little posters. We put up little posters, you know, like you know, not posters, like just little flyers. They they have them, you know, just paste them up on signs. Even before we really had a band together, we just put up with an image, some sort of saying, uh, and then ruin on it. And as well, 
long time before there's even a band. It's just my brother and I did that. No, so we, the sort of the was it a glyph? Uh, the, you know, yeah, the, the that symbol. little glyph was on there. And, yeah. So what was yeah. the was there a certain significance to it? I I just doodled that in class and just thought it looked cool. And I don't know. We started putting these posters up. I just started. There was no real thought behind it or anything. I mean, later people told us, oh, it's like this rune or this Chinese character and it means this and that and the other and harmony and balance and mm-hmm. I, some people thought it looked like a swastika <laughs> <laughs> probably not your intention no not at all uh but it did disturb our, our first manager carol schutzbank you know she was sensitive to that sort of thing and i remember her having a conversation like you know some people you know, this could be perceived as a swastika you want to rethink this but it had no no significance or meaning that i i but I know of, and I, I doodled it, so. Yeah. <laughs> so the band ended, what, around 86, Must have been 86 or, so? 86 or 87. I'm, I'm not right. even exactly sure. Was it 87? Probably 87. So was it, a, was it a petering out due to, you know, different interest, or was there a definitive, the band is now over? I mean, it, it really was a definitive now. I remember, I remember about to go to rehearsal and sitting there, and and feel my body shaking, realizing it's over, it's over. And I remember going to rehearsal and before we rehearsed, saying, "I I think I think this is it. I think it's over." And and everyone pretty much agreed. They had the same sort of sense that you know we've pushed this as far as we can now. And plus, you know, we all had we had our lives on hold. You know, we weren't. You know, some of us had had some college. I was able to somehow finish college through the whole thing. You know, my brother had one year. You know, Cordy needed to get back and finish. And and there was a sense that our lives were on, on hold. We'd, we'd done some really, we were out in San Francisco shortly before this. It had some real, really, some real success, some really great gigs. Um, I remember the the manager of a place called iBeam. Yeah, it, it was a big place. We are playing with this band, Camper Van Beethoven, a big right. college band. The Ticket band. Skinhead Bowling was, the, was their hit. I, don't even, I didn't even really know their music, but I just I, I knew that they were big on the college scene. And I think it was one of the early videos on MTV, so I is think it I had a fair punk even, of, or I don't even know. It's, it's like more a, kind it's of... It's like a quirky... Yeah, yeah. I didn't like... Co- college rock. I didn't like quirky. Not, or, it was quirky. Yeah, so... But it was, it was a good gig, and it was, it was, I-Beam was a very cool place. It was, it was packed, it was big, and the manager there had been around music scene for a long time. She sat me down and said, um, you know, I've been watching you guys, following you guys that see music keep doing what you're doing for three years and you just may find yourselves attracting the kind of attention that will allow you to do this for a living. And I remember being, you know, not excited about that. I remember thinking, you know, three more years of this. <laughs> yeah. Three more years of, you know, driving around in a van with these guys and, you know, putting everything on hold and, and it, it wasn't, it, it's, at that point, it didn't sound that attractive. So anyway, that might have been part of what was going on. We came back and, you know, we kept at it for a while. We kept gigging in Philadelphia. And, but there was just like one day. In, in, my, in my memory, in my mind, in my experience, it was like from one day to the next. This is over. We went to rehearsal, said it. Everyone kind of agreed. We went to a bar on like whatever, 24th and Naudane, some Irish pub. I had beers, talked about it, but it seemed to be clear to everyone that it was time. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back just a, a little bit, 
uh, you released the two LPs. Was it? Was there a, any EPs? Or yeah, there were there were some little things. There's like a flexi disc, and you know, like on compilations. Mm-hmm. No, no EPs, but there are other little other stuff on the discography. I don't even quite remember. Who was it that released uh, in the U.S. the the two LPs? Was it the? There was a Philadelphia company. You know, companies too too fancy yeah. of a term. A guy. A label. <laughs> a label <laughs> called uh, was it Red Records? I think I'd have to look at the record. Yeah, my, I have a something I think like a Dutch. Pressing oh, of one of the. He, I mean, yeah, he had them. Yeah, he licensed that. They were pressed like Harlem, Netherlands. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the second one actually was bizarrely enough pressed by Shawnee Records, which is uh, they're known for like are they known for like Irish stuff and and folk stuff, ethnic music. I, I've heard it was. I don't so it's know. Clan Ad and Ruin. Yeah, I I don't know how I forget the thinking that was behind that. Maybe they were interested in seeing if. I don't know what what the deal was there, but they did the second one. Um, but the company was this guy Dave Reckner, who's the manager of Dead Milkman, and Dave David Wildman, who was our manager. They started this company called um, Oh God, I sure remember what it was called because it, it was related to their names. Um, what the hell, what the hell was it called? But David Reckner and David Wildman, I can't even remember what it was called now. Um, but they started this company, and I think it was the first time I saw computers. I had this little office with two very early versions of computers where they were printing out punch cards or something. I was a little bit after that, but they were like, you know, they doing they had data lists and addresses, and they were organizing Dead Milkman's uh, tour through that. And what the heck were they called? Oh, wait a minute, Raw. It was called Raw Entertainment. Okay. Reckner and Wildman. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, they yeah they did. I guess they. I guess they did Fiat Lux. I'm not even. Must have been. I'm not even sure now. I don't know. Or that must have been through them. I'm not even sure. Okay. Did you ask Cordy? He should. He probably remembers. Yeah, we talked about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I never know who's going to listen to what interview if they listen to all of them or watch yeah, some of the questions. Yeah, right, really, sure, and sure. also there are questions that I'll ask that sure. I kind of know something of yeah. the answer to, but I assume that necessarily the person that's listening doesn't really know. That's so. funny. I'm not even sure enough. That's a if that's a raw entertainment record i think it is actually i think it is i think it's because it's i i think now come think i think it's like raw zero 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 one and i'm like why didn't you at least make it look like use your your eighth or tenth or 40th record why'd you have to was, get was there ever a zero 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 two <laughs> i don't think so well you know david david wildman uh got aids right around that time and and, and died he was he died shortly after that, so yeah, okay. there was no two, I think. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, were there bands that you that you played with or, or toured with that you were especially close with or, or you know thought were particularly compelling, you know, live performers? I, um, I mean, I, I could, I could, I, I mentioned some Philly bands that I, when I went to see them, I, I was impressed and I, they made an impact on me. Um, I remember Decontrol. I remember the first. I, I thought they were really cool. Um, in fact, I think we might have asked them to open for one of our reunion shows. If we, I, I, I vaguely remembered, we asked D-Control to. Um, there was a band, that they were called something like, you know, they, there's, a, there's a heavy metal band called Anvil, right? There's an Anvil, yeah. So yeah. was there a Philadelphia band called Anvil Bitch? There, there was a band called that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, cool, a metal band. Okay. I saw them playing some, they were metal. But uh-huh. I don't know, they had a double drummer or a drummer with a double bass, and it was just it was just kicking metal music. And we got them to play some shows with us at at the at the Kennel Club, 
I remember that. I remember that very distinctly because there was a mixing of, of metal culture and punk culture, and it was it was, it was really apparent. So this Some, is probably more towards like mid eighties. That seems to be there's that. This time is definitely more smelling. towards the, the mid eighties. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know that stuff started growing together more. Like I got really interested in Slayer, and I played it to you know, or Metallica when I first heard Metallica. The very first Metallica record, I played it to everyone. I played it to Lee Paris. I said I want. In fact, when we went, we went to the studio to do Fiat Lux. I, I, he said, "What do you want your guitars to sound like?" And I, I brought him the Metallica record. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it, it ended up not sounding like that. Didn't sound like a kill them all. No, <laughs> that's exactly what I wanted. Lightning. Yeah, yeah. Um, that Mark Springer had, a, you know, a real more of a pop sort of sensibility. So the guitars were, were sort of very compressed and all that. Um, Early on in Philadelphia, the first time I heard Sadistic Exploits, I think it was Eastside Club, I was like, That's a very cool sound, you know. Um, um, I'm trying to think of other Philadelphia bands. I liked Why Die. Um, God, I'm forgetting the, the bands. Were there now. any uh, bands that were coming through town that I, you thought were really great? Um, I, I very much liked... Um, Discharge, the English bands. I loved Crass. I never saw them live. Um, other bands that came... I, you know, Bauhaus was a cool live band. I didn't care for their records too much. Um, and David, I think David again brought them over for the first time, if I remember correctly. Bought them, I forget what it was, someplace on South Street. Um, yeah, first time I heard Cure, they, I loved them. They were raw. They were not the Cure I know now. Um, what other piece? I'm. You have to jog my memory a little bit. The Jam, Clash. I saw. You know, I didn't get to see them till a little later, but still, I thought they were very exciting. I'm very envious of all of you. Oh, uh, really? Your entire list here. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, what other bands? Oh God, I. I mean, they were. We so almost like you know every weekend almost we were seeing bands and. There wasn't such a clear, you know, it happened later. In the beginning, it was just you're seeing a band. And, you know, at some point, it's, they started becoming sort of hierarchized, yeah, bigger yeah. and smaller and and all that. Um, what other bands? Got it? I mean, you know, Public Image. Um, um, yeah, I, I remember this band, TSOL. I don't know if you know them. They were yeah, Sam, yeah, I don't know, Sam's yeah, the LA band. Sounds of Liberty. They, they, were, they were cool live. And I listened, again, often, what often happened was I'd see these bands live and they'd get interested in their records and be disappointed. Uh, I, and that's why I always thought, you know, I always, to this day, I, I, I really prefer sort of live recordings. I remember the first time I heard Ramones, I was like, that, that's incredible, man. That's so cool. Just no frills. Just, yeah. I remember once, it's still, when I tell people this, sometimes I, I, it sounds like I'm, I'm telling them about a dream, but I remember very, very early days, it must have been like late 70s, driving down the Jersey Turnpike, and I saw some sign that said, it said Ramones and Dead Boys, and had an arrow, and I remember I turned off and I followed this sign, and it led to a junior high school <laughs> where the Ramones and Dead Boys were playing, like, you know, on a Saturday afternoon, Jesus. sitting down in a in an auditorium of a junior high school, I get the I'm getting the shivers right now. <laughs> I would like to have it, that dream. But it sounds like a dream, but yeah, it's but, it's actually true. Yeah, that that sounds like something. It, it, it probably cost four dollars because I I rarely had any money on me. I was able to pay the ticket. Uh, to this day, it's just so bizarre. I wish there were some 
I, I could research that because it just sounds so incredible, but it, it, it was indeed true. The Dead Boys were very exciting. I don't know, you know, in the early days, mm -hmm. I yeah, thought, yeah. again, they were kind of like these old rockers in a way, but they were, they were, they were playing cool music. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, just uh, the, uh, not, what are they, the or Orgasmatic, what band is that? Uh, oh, the Vibrators. I mean, not the, not the Buzzcocks. Buzzcocks. Buzzcocks, Buzzcocks. yeah, Buzzcocks yeah, 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 yeah. Very the Spiral cool. Scratch uh, record, and yeah, yeah, yeah. All these yeah, bands. These are great. Yeah. So moving in now is 2013, and you've seen you've seen the birth of this yes. punk, and through some strange miracle series of permutations, there is a form of this that exists today. Does it seem strange to you, all of these years later, to see that this is still a, a vital form of expression for young people uh, and? Others, but I mean, you know, the young people would still be drawn to this. You mean, like they're, but they're drawn to contemporary versions of it. Contemporary that versions, as, as well as uh, older stuff, as well as the older stuff too. Yeah, but I mean, it still kind of speaks yeah. to young people in a way. It doesn't surprise me because I think there's something about it that, that, in a way, a, a healthy, alive youth will respond to. You know, passion and loudness. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. speed. You know, in a sort of ethos of anarchy and chaos, and you know, fuck the system, and that's you know, when 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 it starts getting tame and whatever the the form is, art, painting, music, you know, it's, someone's going to rediscover again that pure strain, you know, mm -hmm. and it's going to manifest. So it doesn't it doesn't surprise me. What I find funny and surprising is the mu my music is harder and louder and crazier than my my daughter's. <laughs> Like that, you're still you're still hearing. Like, turn that shit off or lower the volume, but it's coming from the 13 year old instead of my old man. Yeah, yeah that's very strange. <laughs> but I'm I'm glad it's there. I my older daughter was interested in the hard hard and heavy music, so she would turn me on to stuff. We'd listen to stuff together. Um, I I was always thrilled that you know, and, and it's even better in a way. Like the equipment's better, the technology's better, it sounds better. Some some of these old bands, even when they get back together. Like I've you know I've seen stuff on YouTube or seen clips here and there of like stiff stiff little fingers. That's another band that really moved me back then. Stiff little fingers. Oh yeah, they were great. And it's like, it sounds almost even better. You know, the sounds more booming and clearer. And and I understand that a bit. Like I feel like I have a better sense of the music now. Like I told you, Ruin. We just we just rehearsed for eight hours and all together, all six of us, both drummers, and and I felt like I had a like a better grasp and sense of the music. And then I did back then. It was all just more kind of, I don't know, it's just, I, I don't know, it was raw or something. I, it feels a little more more nuanced now. I have a, a better c control over it, a better feel for it. And, you know, if we ever did a live show, I'd, I'd want to make sure that we had the sound system and the equipment that, that really gets the job done. Back then, you're just playing through whatever, oh, yeah, whatever, whatever you find there. Yeah. And, and, and you're, you're looking at these clips now and it's, it's a little bit painful sometimes, you know, and it's also a shame that that there's a reason that it has persisted, and that is that it was really cool and powerful and and dynamic. But it's it's kind of you don't always get that on on the records and and the live clips from the day and the the audio clips. So I'm really I'm thrilled that it's continued. I love it. I just I I was listening to a bunch of new exploited stuff. It's just it's incredible. 
it's better than it was back in the seventies and eighties. You know, the equipment and everything. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think that the that the the vitality kind of lives on, and that the the DIY ethos uh, kind of shows uh, young people, you know, at a pretty impressionable age, if they're coming into it young, you can do this thing, and yeah. you can kind of work all aspects of it. You can make right. music, you can make a fanzine, you could put on a show. And uh, to me, uh, and I don't like to bring me too much into the interviews, but these these kind of life lessons are really crucial because I think that people take them forward and know that they can actually do things and, and that the impediments that are presented to them are sort of facades. They're false. You can just flimsy, you know, they're flimsy, you push them away. Yeah, yeah. You learn how to do shit. Yes. And you take that forward. I completely agree. That might that might be, you know, and, and, as, and as you alluded to earlier, that, that has stayed with me my whole life. So you have that experience as a young person that you have this idea, you get other people, you know, working with you, you have this creative project, and especially now with the internet and everything, it's even more so. Yeah, because the, yeah. the ability to network right. and, and, you know, to telegraph this out to a I mean, lot can of people. You, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, see, that was all missing back then. So uh, now it's even kind of more... You, you can do even more yourself, um, and it, it is a great life lesson. And it, it, it it's it's it it should really a person can learn very early on that you can make it happen. You know, you 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 can make it happen. The means you know are are at your disposal. It's just a question of, of figuring it out and getting a community together that's necessary for move your creative project forward. And yeah, it's uh, I think. I think that spirit stayed with me my whole life. I think that's that's part of what attracted me as well back then. You know, when things were, they were still in the 70s, you know, firm structures in place. You know, it was still kind of like the world of the 50s in many ways. I mean, the 60s didn't completely overturn that. And there was a real sense of, of limitation, what you can do. And punk changed that, you know change that you learn you know you can you can make these sounds on your guitar and get a cheap guitar and a cheap amp and you find a place to get other guys and find a place to play yeah, and this this re i think this retains a validity today because a younger person is just looking at say like american idol and sees this something very false that they know they're never not they're never going to be a part of but once this little germ comes into their head like never mind all that bullshit you can actually make this yourself you have an amazing means of dissemination through the yes. internet yeah. that no one before you ever had. I, and yeah, I mean, that's like it's such a great seed, I think, to be well, my, planted in someone's head. One reason I've marveled at, at your television here, they won't, they won't know, is he has, <laughs> he has a big a really television. Big we just bought one over Christmas, our first television. Our daughter finally pressured us to get a, a TV, she convinced us to get one. And she was watching, um, I don't know what it's called, it's not American Idol, what, what is it called, like... X fact or what? What is it called? Like there, there is a thing. One, like, one of those shows. I, 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 I got to. I let me get TV stations and, in the TV. Well, that that was but my. I know these things exist. That was my exact response when I was watching that. With her, it was like, this person has this kind of voice. What, what makes him or her think he has to go through this? I mean, he should go start gigging somewhere. And you know, if he's talented, and why would he subject himself to this nonsense? Yeah, that was exactly my my impression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess if people don't know that there is there is another world, uh, I mean, the doors have largely been broken open, but not everyone's walked through them, or they haven't seen the door to walk through. And there's also this idea in America that you can just you can go you know from zero to six, you can just leapfrog the whole thing, go from being an obscure nobody to famous overnight. Maybe that's part of what drives yeah, it too. There needs to be a little bit of a talent 
drive, you know. I mean, back then there was no sense of um, of being able to to make that. I mean, you knew you had to play the gigs and you had to play live and you had to build on it and build a, a list, you know, a, you know, contact list of people, and it was nothing like that. You know, you know, from okay. from nothing to like, you know. <laughs> Maybe the Ed Sullivan show was like that earlier. I don't know. Yeah. Well, super. Uh, I uh, I think we're Good. pretty set. Uh, thank Good you idea. very much uh, for thank talking you. to me. Was, uh, I thought it was an excellent interview. Thank so. you. Thanks. Uh, let me shut this it. John off.